Then this evening, congregation, if you take your Bible and turn to Matthew 28, we'll be reading from verses 11 through verse 15. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1150. Uh, This morning, uh, we considered the passage that goes from verse 1 through 10. Uh, We return our attention this evening to Matthew 28, looking at verses 11 through 15. And again, we anticipate in a few weeks, the Lord willing, Uh, to consider the remaining part of this chapter in connection with a Mission Emphasis Sunday. So we make our way step by step through the gospel record as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, beginning our reading this evening at verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it remarkable that there can be such different reactions to one event? The one event that we have been considering on this day is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, On the third day following his death and burial, the Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his divine power, reunited his human body with his human soul and glorified in a state of exaltation that human body conquering death, conquering sin, making open display uh, of the victory that he had accomplished, not simply for himself, but for those uh, who were his people. And and that fact, that event, was met with by great joy uh, by the women and by the disciples. Uh, We considered something of that this morning. But that same event was met with, you might say, by unbelief and by an attempt to deny what had taken place uh, by the religious leaders of the day, that is, uh, members of the Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees, uh, and the elders, the chief priests. For our instruction, uh, and also for uh, our benefit this evening, I want to take a brief moment and consider this side, so to speak, uh, of the reaction to the resurrection. And I do so because it's not just the chief priest and it's not just uh, the Sanhedrin that have this negative reaction to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are many within uh, the world today, there are many in the Western world today, we might even say there are many perhaps even within our own community who are confronted with the reality of the resurrection but have a response that is something akin to a denial, a denial at least of the implications of the resurrection, a, a denial of the reality of the spiritual significance of the resurrection. And so twofold, uh, considering this passage will warn us uh, against such a denial, but will also explain why, why some people deny, at least practically speaking, uh, the most significant event that has occurred in human history, that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So this evening we turn our attention to this passage, Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, and we'll consider it underneath this theme, 
the denial of the resurrection. We'll notice, first of all, the details in the denial, and then secondly, the reason for the denial, and then thirdly, the outcome of the denial. So the denial of the resurrection, uh, the details, the reason, and the outcome of the denial. And, And again, the event that we are referring to when we speak about the resurrection is this event whereby the Lord Jesus Christ, who was really crucified, who really died a physical death, and in that physical death, there was the separation, the real separation of body and of soul. And as we said this morning, but we repeat it again this evening for clarity and for reminder, uh, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was laid into a tomb. Now, the divine nature remained united with that body, and so that body, according to the prophecy, did not see any corruption. So the normal process of decay that would have soon set in, especially in a warm climate, uh, did not set in. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ did not see any corruption by virtue of its being united to the divine nature. And that same divine nature also was united uh, to the human soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. In the incarnation, underneath the powerful work of the Holy Spirit within the womb of the Virgin Mary, the divine nature of Jesus Christ that is eternal was united together with a very real human nature, body and soul, without any blending, without any mixture. So the divine nature remained the divine nature. The human nature was a real human nature, like unto us at all points, with one major exception, that of sin. And that union took place so that the Lord Jesus Christ could provide a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, because the justice of God demands that the same nature that has offended God's justice, the human nature, for we have sinned against God in our body and in our soul, that same nature must satisfy God's justice. And so an angel could not be our mediator. A mere animal could not be our mediator. Sure, many animals in the Old Testament pointed forward uh, to the work that the Lord Jesus Christ would do, but we needed the human nature to provide a substitutionary atonement for sin. And as Jesus Christ had accomplished that provision of a substitutionary atonement, he committed his spirit into the hands of his Father so that the body and the soul uh, were divided, separated. But on that third day, by virtue of his powerful divine nature, he brought those two back together again in what we call the resurrection from the dead. But certain persons denied. Certain persons said, We will not acknowledge that truth. Guards were put in place over the tomb. Uh, We read of this, if you've kept your Bible open, if you just glance back uh, one chapter, uh, Matthew 27, uh, verse 62 and following. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, just notice their perception of Jesus Christ. And notice the biblical, you might say, play on words, because who ultimately is the deceiver? 
The deceiver is none other than Satan himself. That's the name that Scripture gives, that deceiver of old, Satan who came with his lies uh, even to our first parents. But, but now these religious leaders, uh, these chief priests and their Pharisees, uh, they already have this perception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they claim that he is the deceiver. And they say, we remember how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. So they're identifying him as the deceiver, and yet they're scared of his prophecy. Isn't that remarkable? They say he's nothing but a deceiver. Well, if he is a deceiver and if his words are lies, then there's nothing to worry about. So on the one hand, they say he's a deceiver, but deep down, they know that there was something supernatural about his ministry. And so they concoct an evil plan. And verse 34 continues, Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Just to be clear, these guards, and, and I, I don't know, these words will probably come upon someone who is employed uh, in some type of security for you know, maybe a, a mall or some shopping district. And it's not, not my intent to minimize the important role, but, but don't think of these guards as what, uh, at least in West Michigan, we used to refer to as rent-a-cops uh, or, or mall cops. Uh, these were Roman soldiers. These were men who were acquainted with battle. These were strong, valiant men. You know, there's a difference between a guard and a guard. You might think of the uh, guard of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Now, there's a vast difference between that type of a detail and the person that you'll encounter uh, at the local shopping plaza in Des Moines. Uh, these were manly men who were set and who were appointed uh, over uh, the tomb. But something remarkable had happened, and we remember this perhaps from this morning. A great earthquake had come. An angel, the angel of the Lord, had appeared in the presence of these guards, and these guards had become as dead men. Now, they did not really physically die, uh, but they were frightened to the point of an unconscious, a temporary unconscious uh, state and condition. Uh, upon reawakening from that uh, unconscious condition, uh, these guards, they came and they reported all the things that had happened. No doubt they would have reported then uh, the presence of the angel of the Lord and of his glorious appearance and how the very sight of his glorious appearance uh, had stricken them to the point in which they became as dead men. And so they re record the supernatural event uh, of verse 4. And they record the reality that they found after that supernatural event, uh, that of an empty tomb. So they come and they tell the chief priest uh, and the elders, those who had hired them, those who had stationed them, those who had given them their command, they said, these are the things that have happened. There was a great earthquake. Uh, there was a glorious heavenly being. We became frightened to the point of unconsciousness, and now the tomb is empty. And the chief priest and the Pharisees, they concoct this most evil of schemes, and they persuade these guards 
to deny the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. Uh, Now maybe for the boys and girls, just a word of explanation. Why did they have to give a large sum of money to these soldiers? Because it would have been an embarrassment for these soldiers. Even perhaps embarrassed to the point where it could have cost them their life if they had to admit that they had failed in their responsibility to guard the tomb. They would have looked like incompetent soldiers. They would have had to look like they failed at the one duty that they had to guard the tomb. And the story would have looked incredibly embarrassing for them because they had to go about and they had to say, His disciples came and stole him away. Well, who were his disciples? Most of them, you will remember, were fishermen. And so the report would have been, so you mean to tell us, you Roman soldiers, men of might and men of valor, that a band of Jewish fishermen overcame you, along with perhaps a former tax collector. And you mean to tell me that these people who were so terrified that they weren't even present at the cross with the exception of one, you mean to tell me that this Peter, a fisherman who denied the Lord Jesus Christ, that he suddenly mustered enough courage to overcome you, a Roman guard, and stole away the body? And yet these these Pharisees, they know that they have to concoct this plan. They know that they have to account for the empty tomb because they know something of the prophecies of Jesus Christ. They know that you might even say, and this is quite remarkable, that they are more in tune at this stage in the game with the prophecies that Jesus Christ gave about the resurrection than the disciples are. You don't find the disciples at this point gathering themselves together saying, oh, remember his prophecy? Remember he said the third day he would rise again? You find them forgetting, but the Pharisees, they remember his prophecies. And here's the point. If, if, the prophecies of Jesus Christ were realized that would prove that he was the Messiah. That would prove that he was the deliverer, that he was the redeemer, that he was really the king of the Jews. And that is the point that the Pharisees cannot allow to happen. And so their mentality is, we cannot let the people think that his prophetic word is actually accomplished. We'll pay the guards money We'll put everything on this line. We'll concoct this plan. But if the people come to realize that his prophecies are true, then they'll come to realize indeed that he is the Messiah. Notice they use money, they use silver as a motivation, the same that was used for the betrayal. Now, these individuals seem to have an endless supply of money to buy off people. Just as we transition into our second point, remember the words of 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 
The love of money can lead a person to deny the reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. You could make application for liberal seminaries. You could make application to liberal Christian colleges and universities. The love of money. Whatever you need to do to keep the money flowing. Maybe downplay that biblical teaching. Maybe don't spend so much time uh, talking about that biblical truth. You can think of individual persons in their own lives. How the love of money has led many a person away from the gospel. Away from a true church. uh, Away from a Christian community. Because of a love of money. Well, I can make this much money doing this occupation. Yes, it'll take me away from the household of faith. Yes, it'll take me away from a true church. But that's an awful lot of money. Just be careful that we don't sell our very soul out of a love for money. These Roman guards would have had to do a quick mathematical problem. Tell the truth of what happened or lie and cover up the resurrection and get a lot of money. And they chose the latter. Confronted with the clear evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are persuaded to deny that resurrection. But why? Yes, you might say love of money, but there's something deeper in them and in the hearts of the chief priests and the elders. And that brings us into our second point, the reason for the denial. If you look back, we get a little bit of an insight. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 22 gives us insight into these uh, chief priests uh, and these elders in verses 66 uh, and 67. Uh, There they are interacting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And you'll notice verse 66 of, of Luke chapter 22. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him, that is Jesus, into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. And now notice this, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. So the reason the chief priest and the reason uh, that these scribes are denying the resurrection is because, first of all, of their own unbelief. Now it might sound overly simplistic. You know, we might want to do some type of uh, analysis Uh, of their mentality and of their worldview uh, and of their psychological state. And we might want to examine all sorts of different motives, uh, of a motive of jealousy, uh, of a motive of pride, and all of that certainly has a measure of truth to it. But at the end of the day, it really is this simple. These individuals denied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because of unbelief. Jesus called them out He said, even if I told you straight up that I was the Messiah, by no means would you believe. By no means. Uh, This unbelief uh, was especially focused not necessarily upon the historical reality of a person of Jesus Christ. I mean, obviously they acknowledged that this person, Jesus Christ, was present in human history. And, and, And many, many people do that today also. I've never met a person who would say, I don't believe there was a Jesus Christ who walked this earth. 
That's not the point of their denial. Their point of their denial and their point of their unbelief is that they refuse to trust that this person, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah, is the Savior. And there is a world of difference between saying, oh yes, I believe in the historical person of Jesus Christ. And maybe even going so far as to say, I believe that he was a good man. And maybe I believe that he was a man who healed and who, who taught and who is a good example. But what about the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah? The anointed deliverer and the appointed Savior sent to save sinners. What about that? And you see, between this over here, okay, I believe Jesus was a real person, and I believe he was a good person, and I believe he gave some good advice for how to live, and he showed us a noble way to die, on and on and on. But can you say, I believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief? The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the religious persons of the day, they would acknowledge the historical presence of Jesus Christ, but they could not, they would not recognize him as the Messiah. And so they had to do all that they could in their unbelief uh, to deny the most remarkable work of the Messiah as he had prophesied, that of his resurrection. And we alluded uh, at some point this morning uh, to the fact that many, many persons still today deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can pick up uh, just an average Reformed systematic theology, and you can go through the various explanations, the unbelieving explanations. Uh, there is what's called the swoon theory, uh, that Jesus Christ just succumbed to a state of unconsciousness under the unbearable pain of the cross, and so he passed out, and when he was laid in the coolness of the tomb, uh, he came back to his senses. Of course, then you have all kinds of foolish explanations for how he escaped from the tomb, and of course, you have to deal with the fact uh, that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you have to deal with the fact uh, that a Roman spear entered his side and blood and water flowed out. But skeptics, they can believe almost anything except the truth. You also have a theory uh, which basically just says, well, uh, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they just had hallucinations and they thought they saw the risen Christ. Well, the Bible records very clearly, of course, the reality of the resurrection, but also the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just to a person here or there, but to many. Yes, first the women, and then uh, the immediate band of the disciples, but then also uh, to 500 other disciples. And so all of these unbelieving uh, explanations of the resurrection are just that unbelief, true faith in contrast to unbelief, recognizes, knows, and rests upon that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. 
And with humility but also earnestness, I call everyone who hears these words, whether here in person or whether through the internet or the radio, whether today or tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now, believe that Jesus Christ is not dead. He is risen from the dead. And He is the Messiah. He is the anointed Savior of sinners. That glorious truth these religious leaders will not acknowledge. Not just because of their unbelief, but also because of their impenitence. And now, of course, unbelief and penitence, uh, we're, we're making subtle distinctions. But I make this subtle distinction to point out the reason that they will not believe is because they refuse to have Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They refuse to have Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so therefore, they deny that He has risen from the dead. They deny that He is the Messiah. They deny that He is the Savior. So that they then in their own minds and in their own hearts can be their own kings. And this is what the unbelieving world does today. They say we will not have Christ as king. They echo the crowd's decree, away with the man, crucify him. Sure, I'm, I'm comfortable with a Christ who is a moral teacher and a moral example, but Lord of lords and King of kings, demanding absolute allegiance to him, well, that's too much for most. And so they say, well, this resurrection business couldn't have happened that way. And now it becomes bolstered by uh, our pretended scientific absoluteness. Well, we know that this can't happen. We know that the dead can't rise. We know that this must just be some antiquated fable that simpler people in a simpler time believed. This must be some type of opium for the masses, but no, now we are enlightened. Now we understand. Now we come to know everything, and we know that this could not have happened the way that the Bible tells us. Behind all of that congregation as a refusal to have Jesus Christ as King. But know that that doesn't impact the reality of Christ's kingship. I mean, imagine, boys and girls, you could go up to a brick wall, and I, I don't encourage you to do this. I'd say don't do this, but you can go up against a brick wall and say that wall's not there. And then you can back up and you can run as fast as you want. But you know what? The fact that you said the wall's not there isn't going to change the fact that the wall's there. And you're going to hit the wall. And you can get up and you can say, that wall's not there. And you can back up again and maybe get even a longer head start. And you can run again and smack into that wall. But the point is the denial of the wall does not change the reality of the wall. And the denial of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ does not change the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the denial of the kingship of Jesus Christ does not change for a mere moment the reality. And in fact, according to Psalm 2, the king of kings, he laughs. 
He laughs at those who deny that He is the King. And the day will come, according to Philippians 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These Roman guards who were paid this sum of money, who went forth telling this deceptive lie, they will be brought to acknowledge the truth, and they will say, yes, He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And the chief priest uh, and the scribes and the elders down to every last man will have to acknowledge, yes, He is the Lord of lords, and He is the King of kings. And every single person in the human race, whether they were rich or whether they were poor, whether they lived before the coming of Christ or after the coming of Christ, everyone will acknowledge with a universal testimony that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And yet some deny that today. And that brings a dreadful outcome as we consider in our third point. And in this third point, I just want to point out the absolute emptiness that there is if we deny that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14, 17, and 19, the Apostle Paul writes, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. If Christ is not risen, what I am doing right now is the most pointless exercise. And what you are doing right now is probably the second most pointless exercise, if Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, you're putting all of your confidence in a lie. The Apostle Paul continues, and I trust you know where he's going. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ is not risen, we don't have the forgiveness of sins. And if Christ is not risen, we don't have eternal life. And if he's not risen, we don't have any hope. But, of course, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But if anyone continues to deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to just confront you lovingly with the fact that you're forced to have an absolute futile view of life. Apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, life is meaningless. Uh, now, Ecclesiastes is translated by some more contemporary translations as saying that meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. It's, it's really not a good translation. The word there does not mean meaningless. It means a fleeting nature. That life is a vapor, and, and that's certainly a biblical truth. Physical life is a, of a fleeting nature. I like the illustration, the boys and girls maybe in the summer, uh, although here in Iowa the bubbles probably blow away before they form, but have you ever tried to catch a bubble? The minute you get your hand on it, the bubble pops. That's kind of what our life is like. One day we're here, and we blink our eyes a couple times, and we find ourselves at the end of our life. But life is not meaningless. 
unless Christ did not rise from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then life is meaningless. I mean, what is it then? Just, just some cruel joke? I mean, imagine just for a moment, as difficult as I trust it is for us with a Christian worldview, imagine if there is no resurrection of Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if there is no hope of eternal life. I, I well remember my wife's grandfather. Uh, he would often say, you know, life is trouble from the womb to the tomb. Now, he wasn't necessarily an overly pessimistic person. He was just a Dutch realist. Life, trouble from the womb to the tomb. Is that all there is? Trouble? Is that all there is? You know, we, we work really, really hard, and then disease comes, and then we die. Is it any wonder why the world is filled with this sense of angst? You mean to tell me there's nothing more than 60, 70, 80 years, and then we're gone? Well, of course, we know that there is much more than that. We know that life is not meaningless, but if we deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then life is futile. Uh, then the worldview that is called nihilism is, is correct. Nothing matters. Do we then understand part of the reason why suicide rates are on the increase? Why depression rates are on the increase? You, you tell someone who's created in the image of God, you say, you know what, you're nothing but a mass of atoms. There's no meaning, there's no purpose. You're going to live as an organism for 60, 70, 80 years, then you're going to cease to exist. Well, thanks for that. But of course, thanks be to God that Christ is risen and that our life is not meaningless. If we deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is life futile, but also there's no hope for eternity. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we will also not rise from the dead. Then I guess if you want to take that position, if you want to follow these Roman soldiers and follow these Pharisees and follow these scribes, this is it. And what do you say then when you look upon the grave of a loved one? That's it. Game over. Roll the credits. What a dismal view. Thanks be to God that's not our view. Right? Thanks be to God we say we know that we have life. Even in the midst of death, we know that we have life. Thanks be to God, congregation, that, that we can echo the words of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that. Well, how do you know that? The pages of Scripture. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And, and I know that even after this body is destroyed, which unless the Lord comes back, before, I know that this body will be destroyed. I know that my soul will be ushered into the eternal realm by the angels, and that this body, this, this earthly tabernacle, this earthly tent, 
And we see the evidence even now as the years take their toll. We see the line start across our brow and underneath our eyes and in the corners of our faces. And it reminds us that the clock is ticking for our earthly tabernacle. And we see the evidence of the ravages of disease. And we're confronted with the reality that one day, maybe even here in this place, the funeral director will also wheel our casket towards the front. And the family and the friends will gather. And they'll sing. And a minister will say a few words. And they will be ushered down as far as our mortal remains and will be lowered into the ground. But even then, the testimony of the Christian is, I know my Redeemer lives. That's why my body is going to be lowered in the ground and not just burned into ashes and scattered to the wind because I know my Redeemer lives and after this body is destroyed in my flesh, I shall see God. Because the risen Christ will emerge on that glorious day and the trumpet will sound and the graves will be opened up. And because his body and soul were reunited, my body and soul, which are united to him by this living and active faith, will also be reunited. And I will be translated. I will be glorified. And everything will be made new. Believing in the reality of the resurrection, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that's the wonderful testimony of the person who cannot deny the reality of the resurrection. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious truth. Uh, We ask that you would help us to understand the reality of the resurrection and to have that confidence of faith that we, in the midst of death, might know that we have life Because the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not dead, but He is indeed risen. And He has not simply gone before us into Galilee, but He has gone before us into the new heaven and the new earth. And as He did so, He promised us that He would come again. And so we look forward to that day with hopeful anticipation. And we ask that you would keep us faithful until that day. For the sake of Jesus Christ, amen.